Turn this evening in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke in chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, begin reading in verse 19, reading to the end of the chapter. Luke 16, beginning with verse 19. This is God's word. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the honesty of your word, that you do not merely speak to us of things that are pleasant and easy, but you deal with the most difficult and most important issues of our life and death. And hereafter. We thank you for this passage and for the instruction that our Savior gave to his disciples then and now. And we ask that you would bless it and use it for your glory and our good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, anytime you speak for nearly 40 minutes without stopping, you're probably going to end up saying something. You shouldn't have. Or at the very least, say something that you could have said better 
if you had taken the time to think about it. Well, last Sunday evening, I said we were concluding our study on the series on heaven. Well, it did not take me long to realize later that that was not exactly true. Because as you can see from the message this evening, we are continuing to talk about heaven. As a matter of fact, what we see here in the Gospel of Luke are a few other additional elements that we did not deal with in the four-part series on the subject of heaven. Here in Luke 16, we find these relatively familiar words of Jesus in which he describes the life and death of two men. Quite frequently, you will hear this passage referred to as the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. But not everybody is agreed on that. The question is, is this a parable? Or is this a, we could say, historical picture? Is this a, a picture of actual things that are happening in heaven and in hell? The reason why commentators differ on this is that no other parable, not one, uses names for the people. And yet here, our Lord gives us a name for the beggar, Lazarus. He talks about Abraham, and these are particular people whom we know are historical figures. Also, other parables tend to be very generic in the way they describe things. And so even in the parables that we've seen in this section, in Luke 16:1, there was a certain rich man who had a steward. And he goes on and he describes the unfaithful servant of the rich man. A little bit earlier, if you look back to chapter 15 and verse 11, a certain man had two sons a younger and an older. And he describes things that happen, but no names are given. Matthew 13, we have the, the well-known parable of the sower. A certain sower went out to sow, but we have no names. It seems to me that in this particular case, we have specific events and people things that are named and talked about in a very specific way. Other parables say the kingdom of heaven is like this or that. It's like a dragnet or it's, it's like a man who sowed uh, wheat in his field. But there is no likeness here. It almost seems that Jesus is describing what is actually taking place. Now, either way, the truths highlighted for us in this passage of Scripture are of inestimable value and importance. And they are extremely important 
for every single one of us in this room tonight and for all of those who may be watching live stream. It doesn't matter whether you're old or young. It doesn't matter whether you're a man or a woman, a boy or a girl. This is important. And what Jesus has to say here is of great value to each and every one of us. We're going to look under three primary headings. The first is two men with two very different lives. Now, similarly, Matt reminded us of the context of the passage in Romans this morning because it's been several weeks since we've looked at that. And the same is true here. We come to Luke 16, the end of the chapter, and we might be tempted to think, okay, here's a new section, here's a new lesson, and this is, this is something we just pick up here, and this is all we need to be concerned with. Well, my friends, don't fail to realize that these words spoken here are closely connected to what we've been dealing with. And if you can remember from a few weeks back, you will remember that Jesus has been teaching the crowds and he's been addressing the Pharisees in particular and he's been trying to communicate to them of the necessity of taking an interest in other people. Remember how he, he was eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners and the Pharisees complained about that. And Jesus gives them the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. Because he's saying, this is what true life is. We take an interest, especially for the lost, especially for the sinners, and those that others may, may cast aside and want nothing to do with. But the children of God are interested in them, and they are concerned about them. He goes on and he gives the, the parable of the unfaithful servant, and he's showing them that you need to use your possessions for God's glory in the service of God. There's nothing wrong with being blessed financially, materially by God, but use those blessings not just for your own pleasure, not just your own enjoyment, but use them for the glory of God. And then most of all, I think Jesus has been driving this point home of how important the word of God is. Remember how he puts it back in chapter uh, 16 and then he, he's talking about the law and the prophets. And he says in verse 16, the law and the prophets were until John. In verse 17, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fall. And then he puts the barb on it when he says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. Because that was the law and the prophets. 
And the Pharisees themselves were ignoring that law. And men were divorcing their wives for practically no reason at all, simply because it pleased them. And Jesus is saying, you're not listening to the word of God. And so now we come to this statement or this story of the rich man and Lazarus. What we see here are two men with very different lives. One man is exceedingly rich, and the other man is exceedingly poor. The rich man, we're told, dressed himself in purple and fine linen. In other words, he wore the absolute best clothes that could be found. He was dressed in the most expensive line of clothing that could be named. But in addition to that, Jesus said he feasted sumptuously. Not just on Thanksgiving and Christmas when he had a big family gathering, but Every single day, this man was eating the most expensive food. He was drinking the finest wine that was available. He feasted sumptuously every single day. The point is, here was a man living in absolute luxury. He was enjoying every possible comfort imaginable nothing was being withheld from him and then we have this radical contrast because verse 20 introduces us to a beggar named Lazarus this beggar my friends was nothing like the beggars we see all around town. This man had absolutely nothing. He was unimaginably poor. So Jesus describes this man. He didn't have clothes like you and I have, if he had clothes at all. He may have been clothed in a few rags. He was laid at the rich man's gate. He was crippled and he was extremely sick. So he's poor beyond description. He's crippled. He's been placed there and he cannot move. He is lying there And he is extremely sick. The translation here saying that the dogs came and licked his sores is very nice. The word actually means open wounds, ulcers, oozing, weeping. And the dogs are coming and licking his sores. Can you even fathom 
that kind of poverty. Here is this man, unbelievably rich, has every possible enjoyment in life that you can name. And then here is this man lying at the rich man's gate, and he's just hoping that the servant will bring out a few crumbs from the rich man's table so that he can have something to eat. We have two men with very different lives. One of them had everything. And one of them had absolutely nothing. I wonder tonight how you would think of yourself. Would you think of yourself as rich? Would you think of yourself as poor? Because maybe you can't afford what somebody else can afford. We have two very different men. And the real searching question is who would you say of the two was better off? Maybe I'm I'm being too uh, harsh here, but I, I, I believe most of us would probably say, oh, the rich man. I wish I had that kind of money. I wish I could afford those kind of luxuries. I wish I could have whatever I wanted. Is that not the way we often think? But the point that Jesus is making here is that we need to stop and think about what's really important. And my friends, it's not how much money we have. It's not how many pleasures we enjoy. It's not what we can afford to lavish upon ourselves. It's not even whether or not we have none of those things. The issue is far deeper than that. And Jesus is highlighting for us here what's really important. In life, two men with two very different lives. Now, listen. This this is not just a problem in Jesus' day. You can go back to the book of Jeremiah that we were reading from earlier, and in chapter nine and verses twenty-three and twenty-four, Jeremiah says, "Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom." The man that says, education is everything. Knowledge is everything. I have a PhD. I have risen to the top of my field. That's important to me. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. I'm strong. I'm a mover and shaker. I am at the top of my company. I am a power broker. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. You want to know what's important? Let him who glories glory in this, that he understands 
and knows me that I am the Lord. I think a very clear lesson that is being presented here is this rich man had it all except for a knowledge of who God was and a love for that God. We'll see more of that, particularly in the second point. Two men with two very different deaths. Now, we're not told how long this poor man was laid there, how long he had to sit there and suffer. We're simply told that he died. We're not given any information. We're not told anything about a funeral or a burial. Perhaps he had one. Most likely he did not. There's no mention of any friends. Apparently he had no family to help care for him. He did not have a church family as you and I have to show compassion, to help. We can only assume that his body was disposed of. On the other hand, we're told that the rich man also died and was buried. No doubt, because of his wealth, he probably had a very fine funeral. Many friends would come and maybe talk about how wonderful a person he was. Maybe even the governor of the region was called in to say a few words about what an outstanding uh, member of the community this man was. Whatever the case, this was a very different kind of death than that man, Lazarus. But the difference between the two extends far beyond who attended their funeral. At their death, these two men, we are told, were ushered into two very different places. Of the beggar, in verse 22, we read, it was said that when he died, he was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom or Abraham's side. Now, this, this language, Abraham's bosom, was a simple Jewish designation for heaven. It was the same idea. My friend, Scripture knows absolutely nothing about a special place for the wicked or for saints, for that matter, before the resurrection. To be carried to Abraham's bosom was to be carried where Abraham was. And remember what Jesus talked about when he said, many will come from the east and the west and sit down in the kingdom of heaven with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. To be with Abraham was to be where believers are, and that is in the presence of God. This would be a synonym with Jesus' word paradise. Or for that matter, the Apostle Paul uses the same kind of language. Jesus tells the thief on the cross, Today, today, when you close your eyes in death, you will be with me 
in paradise. It was what Paul called the third heaven. It is what Jesus says later on the cross. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The moment Jesus died, his spirit was with God. Was in the hand of God. It was in paradise. And this is where the beggar was carried. In verse 23, we have a very different picture. The rich man was died and was buried. And then we're told in verse 23, being in torment in Hades. Now, sometimes people make a lot out of the word Hades, particularly in the Old Testament. It was used in the, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures to translate the word Sheol, which can simply be the grave. You will not leave my, my body in Sheol, in the grave. But in the New Testament, Hades is clearly and exclusively a designation of hell. So this is not some, some uh, in-between state. This is hell fire. This is a place of torment. This is a place of flames, of suffering, of pain. Now, I don't think we need to trouble ourselves with every little detail of this story that Jesus is giving whether it be a parable or whether it be an actual reflection of what is going on in heaven. But Jesus says, or has Abraham say, there is a chasm between us that cannot be crossed over. Now, we don't need to trouble ourselves with what that chasm is, where it is, if it is. And then we have the question that people ask, does this mean we're going to be able to see people in hell? And can they see us? Will there be conversations between the two? And those are details that take us afield from the purpose of what Jesus is driving at here. The point to be made is this. There are two very different places on the other side of our grave. When we die, when we are buried, there are two very different places. One is a place of comfort and blessing and peace and rest. And the other is a place of misery and pain and suffering. Here are two men. They lived very different lives and they died very different deaths. And their deaths produced very different results. One was carried to a place of comfort and rest. My friend, I don't know if we can properly estimate the comfort that brings to our souls that when we die, we will be with Jesus in paradise, in the Father's hands, and he will never, ever remove us from that. 
But if we don't know Christ, have no reason to believe that we are going to be in that place, but rather like this rich man in Hades, in hell. Two very different places. There's heaven and there's hell. Well, then let's look at two men and two very different futures. Now, this final section of this portion of Luke 16 focuses upon two vital elements. One is the finality of our condition after death. And the second is the sufficiency of the word of God to direct us to life eternal. It's the sufficiency of the scriptures. The written word of God is what we need to focus on. First of all, we see the rich man in torment. Lazarus, on the other hand, is resting comfortably in enjoying the blessedness of Abraham and other saints and the presence of God himself. Now, what follows is a very interesting series of pleas by the rich man. And the first one that you see in verse 23, the rich man lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham and he saw Lazarus and he cried out, Father Abraham. This is striking because this rich man who had no interest in serving God, who lived his entire life for himself, thought of himself as a son of Abraham, a child of God, a child of Abraham. And so he calls Father Abraham. It may remind you of, of how Jesus dealt with this when in John chapter 8, and he's talking with the Pharisees, and he says in verse 37 of John 8, I know that you are Abraham's descendants. You physically are a descendant of Abraham, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. This man thought he was a believer. He was a follower of Jehovah. He thought he was safe. He thought he should be with Abraham. And Jesus said, if you were Abraham's child, you wouldn't seek to kill me. You would love me. And yet he thought he was safe. It's very easy to deceive ourselves. Well, I go to church, I read the Bible, I, I put money in the offering plate. We could go down a, a long list. That's not what makes you a child of God. It is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is trusting him and him alone as Savior. It is commitment to him as Lord the Lord Jesus Christ. 
That is what defines us. And that is what makes us a child of God. But notice also that the rich man, what he says, Father Abraham, have mercy upon me. Send Lazarus just to to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I am in torment. I am in pain in this flame. This man who did not show a molecule of mercy to the beggar who was at his gate for who knows how long who did not minister to him, who did not care for him, who had no concern for him, and probably for no one else. And yet he wants mercy now. Friends, do you see the connection to what Jesus has been talking about? We need to be concerned for one another. We need to be concerned about the lost We need to be using our worldly possessions for their good and for the good of the church and for the glory of God and not just focusing upon ourselves and our pleasure and our enjoyment. Abraham's response is telling. He basically says you had your opportunity And you did not use your possessions like the word of God instructed you to use them. And now you are facing the consequences and that can not be changed. It's too late. There is no more opportunity to change that now. The judgment of God is final. My friends, I look across this congregation and I see most of you and am relatively assured of your faith and trust and love in Christ. But if there is anyone here tonight who's doubting that, who's not absolutely certain that you are trusting in Christ, that you are are ready to meet him. If you die tonight, now is the time, Paul says. Today is the day of salvation. Don't wait. Don't put this off until later. It needs to be dealt with now, if you haven't already. Don't wait. Because after death, there are no second chances. Second plea that this man makes is, but Abraham, send Lazarus back to my father's house. I've got five brothers and I don't want them to come here. Send Lazarus back from the dead and they will believe. And Abraham speaks very clearly and he says, they have Moses and the prophets. Now just think about this aspect. All he's saying is they have the Old Testament. 
How much more, brothers and sisters, how much more do we have in the Gospels, in the Epistles, in the writings of the the Apostles and Prophets from the New Testament? We have the full revelation of God's will for us. Remember how our, our catechism, you children have been learning it, what do the scriptures principally teach? The scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. We have it all. They had the Old Testament. And Abraham says, that's all they need. And the, and the rich man insists, no, no, Father Abraham. If someone goes back from the dead... If they see a a miracle, if they see some fantastic sign, then they will believe. Do you realize what Abraham says? He says, no. If they won't listen now to Moses and the prophets, they won't believe even if someone comes back from the dead. My friends, evidence, the best evidence in the world will convince no one. I don't care what it is. It could be a miracle. Somebody who's been dead coming back from the grave and they would still deny God. Evidence convinces no one. It is the word of God that's quick, that's living, that's powerful, that changes hearts, that changes lives. It's the gospel, Paul says in Romans 1.16, that is the power of God unto salvation. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 That all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for doctrine, for correction, for reproof, for instruction. That the man of God may be thoroughly equipped unto every good work. Everything. There's not one thing that the Bible does not provide us with in the way of life and salvation. The word of God is all we need. Now, that means that if you want your children to be saved, read them the word. Teach them the word. Write it on the doorpost of your house. Talk about it when you sit down and when you rise up, when you go to sleep and when you wake up. It needs to be part and parcel of your life. And that word, my friends, will change them. It means that when you have a friend or a family member and you want them to know what you know, use the word. Teach them, talk to them, pray with them and use the word. It is the word of God that will bring life. When you yourself want to grow, when you yourself want to know beyond the shadow of a doubt 
of your relationship with Christ, go to the Word. It's the Word that's going to to explain to you who God is and what He requires of you. Don't neglect the Word. Use it. Pray it. Sing it. Read it. Memorize it. Hide it in your heart. Psalm 119. When David says, your word I have hidden in my heart. Why? That I might not sin against you. Everything, brothers and sisters, it's sola scriptura. The hallmark of the Reformation was to go back to the Bible and the Bible alone. Use the word. Heaven or hell? Which will it be? It will not be determined by your works. It will not be determined by your position. It will not be determined by how much money you have or don't have. It will be determined whether you take the word of God And listen to that word. When it tells you you you're a sinner in need of a savior. When it says there is only one, Jesus Christ, the Lord, that can deliver you from that sin. And give you everlasting life. At the end of the day, my friends, it will be the word of God. If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets... They won't believe no matter what happens. Ask God to make his word effectual in you, in your children, in your grandchildren, in your friends and your neighbors and your co-workers. Only God can make that word effectual in the hearts of men. Two men, very different lives, very different deaths, and very different futures. One in heaven, one in hell. Which will it be for you? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these solemn, serious words that call us to examine our own hearts and lives, that call us to yourself, that we might heed the word and flee from our sins to Christ and trust in him. Bless this word tonight to our hearts and lives. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Let's take a few moments. Meditate upon these truths.